This message was recorded at North 2012, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very blessed and honored to have my wife Elaine with me here today. No, you must stand up. Uh, we met in the early 1980s in Durham. She was nursing and came to the church that I was planting called Emmanuel. And then, and, uh, then we got married and went to Canada where we've been involved in. We planted another church in 1984. We're still there. And I'm now um, part of the uh, Canadian Apostolic Team for New Frontiers. We're trying to, at long last, get something off the ground in Canada. So anyone that's interested in Canada, we're, we'd be more than interested in. We have a great beaches in the summer, great skiing in the winter. And uh, we'll, we'll, throw, we'll entice you in any possible way. I've got some money at the back. I'll pay you off with if you want to come. Uh, no. Now, um, I hope none of that was recorded. All right, I'm always saying that. Um, so, in this talk today, uh, you're not going to be able to take in all of the information that, that I'm giving. Um, I'll do my best. I think I succeeded last year. Um, I'll do my best to get the powers that be to post the full notes on the North website. Uh, failing that... Um, I will make sure they're posted on our church website, Trinity Christian, where you can find us. If you Google Trinity Christian Church, you'll find us. Uh, and uh, it's a great website. My elder Jamie is with me today, developed it. And, uh, and we've got lots of stuff on there. So, um, But just to say, don't worry if it's some of it is kind of floating over your head or you're thinking, I, I can't take all of this in. Uh, just be impacted by the totality of it. Um, now, what I do here is I present some, some significant themes from a book by uh, a lady called Margaret Visser, who's a professor at York University, which is not in York. It's actually in Toronto because Toronto was called York, and there was too many Yorks, New Yorks, and so on around, so they changed the name to Toronto about 200 years ago. So Professor Visser wrote this remarkable book that I got a hold of, and I've taken some of the themes from it, but I've given my own biblical applications to them. Now, one of the most common phrases that we hear today is that of the timeline. Uh, whether it's at church, at home, or at our place of business, we're encouraged to develop a timeline and move along it to a point of completion. But how often do we ponder do we stop to ponder why it is that we view time as a line? The fact is that we view time as a line along which events move like vehicles on a road. If we draw a diagram, which if I was more PowerPoint-oriented, um, I would have done, but if you drew a diagram, you might draw past time as a solid line, the present as maybe a dot on the line, and future time as a series of dots representing the uncertainty of future events. Now, that's a helpful way of picturing time and events. But it's important to remember that time does not really exist outside of people. The events occurring along the line involve the lives of people, past and present, the decisions they take and the consequences of them. The direction of the line 
is affected by the decisions taken by people according to their free will and power to do what they want, whether for good or for evil. And that's the way the Bible understands time. But there's another way of understanding time. It's a way that was birthed in ancient Greece, but is also, also known to other ancient Near Eastern civilizations. It's a way understood today, very much so in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in New Age religion. And this illuminates the fact that contrary to what most people out there say, there aren't really many religions to choose from. There are really only two alternatives. As C.S. Lewis pointed out many years ago, those alternatives are Christianity and Hinduism. Because everything else is just an imitation or a heresy of one of those two. So whether it is in ancient Greece, in modern Hinduism, or in the kind of New Age, postmodern philosophy that you and I face all around us today, the alternative view of time to Christianity takes the following form. What if we understood the line of time as existing independently of people? It's something there. Something given before anything else existed, before even God existed or the gods existed. We don't know where it came from, but it represents the foundation of existence. It can't be tampered with or changed by man or by a god. It takes on a life of its own. People fit into the pattern of events as they are moving along the line. They are caught up in something beyond their control. And the Greeks express this reality as fate. Now, for the Greeks and most other ancient civilizations, fate was like a blueprint. It was a gigantic design laid out in advance. No one could escape from its grasp. It was impersonal and therefore without any court of appeal or without any mercy. Even the gods with their supernatural powers could not defy fate. Now, fate was conceived of, <coughs> excuse me, in one of two ways, either a line or a circle. So a person's life was represented by a line or a thread. The events of our life move along a predetermined path and eventually the line or the thread is cut, representing the moment of death. And this thinking still occurs today every time someone reads the fate of a person from the lines on their hand, including the line of life and where it ends. Now, according to the Greeks... The timelines of life were controlled by the three Furies. They were divine beings. And the Furies policed the lines and visited a terrible retribution on anyone, whether it was a man or a god, who tried to stray from the path that fate decreed for them. Now, just remember the Furies and hold that in your mind till the end of this talk. The second way the Greeks pictured fate was they join the two ends of the line together and fate now represents a circle or a boundary beyond which we cannot move. And the circle represents the fate of an individual. The boundaries of the circle are the limits assigned to that person by fate. The circle easily becomes a prison. Tolkien's ring is a tremendous symbol of fate and that's where he, he got it from. It's a circle which binds or dooms those inside it. Freedom can only be achieved by destruction of the ring. Now, the Greek version of the story would have ended differently, for no one could have challenged the power of fate. The ring would certainly have triumphed. 
So only someone like Tolkien, who was influenced by the Bible, could have written a story where freedom existed to destroy the power of fate. And we'll talk about that later. And so the circle of fate can also represent not just an individual, but the world in its totality, which is the sum total of all of our fates. In which case, the circle is divided up into portions, representing the lot or the fate of each person. Now, the Greek word for fate is moira, and that means a portion, something divided out from the whole. It could refer to a portion of meat cut from the roast, or uh, fate could be represented like a pie cut into pieces. Now, two things are significant about this. First of all, the pie represents all there is. There isn't any more to be had. And I can tell you, having raised with my wife, or her having raised with my assistants eight children, there's only so much pie to go around. <laughs> Although that seemed to escape their notice, especially my sons. But first of all, the pie represents all there is. There isn't any more to be had. And second, you can only have the piece you've been offered. Just like you can only have the portion of meat that's served to you at the table. Now, here, let me be talking about Greek philosophy and there's flipping football going on outside. <laughs> this is bizarre. Anyway, well, we'll just make the best of it. Now, if we think of fate as determining the portion allotted to us, what exists within the outline of that portion constitutes our value, our identity, our whole entire life. And so above all, for the Greeks, the portion of fate allotted to us determines our honor. The possession of honor was the greatest treasure a person could have, and the more of it, the better. The extent of our honor depends on the amount of the pie allotted to us. Bigger is better. And there's, as there's only so much to go around, the only way... I can increase my honor is at the expense of someone else. And so the whole diagram becomes like a jigsaw puzzle with each piece representing somebody's amount of honor. Now, for the Greeks, honor was all about position. It was getting a bigger piece of the pie. And honor is entirely determined by what other people think of you. So if you look good in the eyes of other people, your honor has increased. If you look stupid, instead of honor, you receive shame. And soon it becomes like a competition with the people watching, deciding who has won. If someone steals a portion of honor for me, increasing their reputation or position by reducing mine, my only option is revenge. It touches in a kind of an interesting way on in what Dave Devinish was talking about this morning. Somehow I must take back that which was stolen from me, for there's only so much honor to go round. My honor can only be increased by reducing the honor of another by a similar amount. Now, in this, it's important to remember that honor has nothing whatsoever to do with ethics or morality. Even the gods were connivers and schemers. You see the same thing to this day in Hinduism. And they were applauded for being so if they could somehow cheat their way to a bigger piece of the pie... Honor is just becoming bigger than those around you. Now, the flip side of honor is shame. The important thing to remember about shame is it's not guilt as we understand it. It doesn't refer to a moral failure. It doesn't refer to something wrong you've done. It doesn't refer to an ethical standard you've failed to reach. Shame is just being on the losing end of the power struggle. So, in ancient Greece, if a woman was raped, she was shamed. Her honor was lost. 
She'd done nothing wrong. Indeed, she was the innocent victim. But now she's damaged goods, fit for no one to marry. And so rape also represented the removal of a woman from her husband, and that took with her his honor, as well as destroying hers. And so a crippled person or deformed person is a person with great shame, someone who is mocked and laughed at by others. Shame is external. It's an opinion others have of us which has nothing to do with moral worth or value. And the crippling thing about it is that shame is not like guilt in that it cannot be forgiven. After all, the person shamed hasn't necessarily done anything wrong. Shame is therefore far more crushing than guilt. Guilt can be removed through forgiveness, but shame is a part of the essence of the person. It can only be diminished by taking revenge, and if the person is unable to do so, they must bear their shame forever. Now, honor, the portion of the whole which is ours, is allotted or determined by fate. Ultimately, we cannot control what's happening to us. We cannot move outside the amount of honor assigned. Even the gods had relative amounts of honor predetermined by fate and could not move outside of them. So the whole universe is caught up in a gigantic given, something which simply is and cannot be changed. But human nature pushes us toward the possession of as much honor as we can get. Now, going beyond the lines of the diagram, pushing the boundaries of fate was what the Greeks termed transgression. Transgression does not express right or wrong in a moral sense. It's simply to challenge the boundaries fate has laid down for us. So a person of noble character who transgresses the limits would be punished, while a scoundrel would escape as long as he stayed within his bounds, which may have been large enough for him to live a very pleasant life and one better than the person of noble character. He might have been fated to attain wealth through cheating other people. Who knows? So a second word that was used beside transgression for challenging the boundaries of fate was pride. In Greek, hubris. Hubris, like transgression, does not express right or wrong morally, but just trying to get more of the pie than fate has allotted. Now, hubris or transgression upset the whole system. They created disorder. Everyone begins to lose honor and has to try to regain it from somebody else. And in the ensuing disorder, the weak and the innocent suffer while the gods are pictured as looking on and enjoying the spectacle and the furies punish the transgressors and restore order. Yet in all of this, even the fact we have transgressed is itself fated, so there's no way out. Now, what is the biblical revolution? See, it's an incredible fact that of all, out of all religious viewpoints, ancient and modern, only the Bible presents a way out of the diagram of fate. See, we appreciate this so little because in the West, we enjoy the fruit of centuries of a biblical understanding of reality. An understanding which, in my opinion, is enormously under threat in our day. The biblical revelation breaks the power of fate by presenting the truth of a supernatural, personal God who created everything out of nothing. Before and outside of whom nothing exists or is given. He is a God with unlimited freedom who created men and women in the image of that freedom. 
And early on in its pages, the Bible presents a triumphant picture of the God who destroys the bondage of fate. His children are imprisoned without hope under the cruel bondage of the greatest empire of the age. But through supernatural intervention, the cry of freedom goes up from the lips of Moses. Let my people go. And by signs and wonders, God leads his people out of Egypt, breaking the power of fate and demonstrating that, demonstrating that all of history is subject to his command. We're no longer imprisoned on the line of time. We're no longer held in bondage within its ring or its circle. We have power to rise up about above the line and break out of the circle. And we do it by entering into personal relationship with this sovereign God. See, freedom can be won by obeying God's law. The road out of Egypt is not the timeline of fate, but the pathway to freedom. So the way things are is not necessarily the way things have to be. A supernatural God gives us the ability to shape our lives and break free from what has bound us. So, in a phrase, Christianity changes fate into freedom or destiny. Destiny is a destination. Destiny is an eternal purpose we can reach to which the only real hindrance is my own obedience or disobedience. Nothing others can do to you, nothing fate can do to you, can prevent you from reaching the destiny God intends for you to reach. It doesn't matter what somebody else does to you because you have a relationship with a supernatural God who controls everything and will turn even the worst things to good. So Romans 8 and 28 would have been incomprehensible for the Greek. It would have been, or maybe I should better put it, it would have been revolutionary for the Greek or the Roman or the person of any ancient civilization to hear that God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So to blame others, to become bitter at what others have done to us, that's what Dave was also alluding to this morning, is actually to fall back into a fatalistic attitude in which you assume there's no way out for the wrong that was done to you. Whereas in fact, as my psychologist friend will tell you, the damage that you do to yourself through bitterness against that person is more than they ever did to you no matter what they did. Because it will imprison you, as Jesus said, for the rest of your life. Now, fate is determined by something other than myself, but destiny is between me and God alone. So in this biblical revolution was laid, I think, the entire basis of Western science and civilization because it's built on the concept of progress. It's built on the supposition that things can be changed, that they are not governed by fate or by karma. So that's why Western Europe and North America are different from fate-conditioned societies such as India. People can change things if they choose to make right choices. That's why the Bible is the foundation of all of our economic prosperity. That's just an aside. But the Bible tells us more than all this because the message of the Bible breaks the power of the honor and shame system. See, honor no longer depends on how big we make ourselves at the expense of other people. 
So the Bible teaches that every person is of infinite worth and value. There is an unlimited amount of honor available. So our kids can eat pie and invite all their friends over. And there's still more pie to come out of the oven for them. So, see, the reason there's an unlimited amount of honor available is because honor and worth and value come from the infinite and unlimited God who has chosen to pour out His love upon people without measure. Now, the Bible teaches that all have fallen short of His standard, and the Bible teaches this falling short represents paraptome in Greek, which is transgression. Same word as the Greeks use, but with a very different meaning. Transgression will prevent you from entering into your eternal inheritance. But transgression is, to, is not a, a, a futile attempt to defy fate. Transgression is guilt. It's not shame. Guilt is conscious, deliberate wrongdoing against God and His law entered into of our own free will. But for guilt, there's a solution. And God has provided it. Now think about the revolutionary implications of Philippians chapter 2. Matter of fact, I was just preaching on it. Too bad you weren't in Cockermouth last Sunday or else you would have been blessed. <laughs> that was a moment of pride. The Lord will strike me in any minute. Now, hopefully not till the message is over. Now, but consider the revolutionary implications of Philippians chapter 2, 6 to 11, in light of the Greek culture into which it was spoken. This passage tells us that Jesus, who held the place of highest honor, equality with God, did not seek to hold on to that place of honor, but rather he did the following. It says, he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave, the lowest of the low. He humbled himself. He submitted to the shameful death of the worst kind of criminal. All things that would have indicated he was fated to be shamed and, and, and given the lowest place. But the Son of God did not lose any of his honor in doing so. In fact, Paul tells us the place of highest honor is now reserved for the very one who descended to the lowest place. It's the cross which is the ultimate symbol to the Greek of shame and fate and could not even be spoken of in Roman society, polite society, the cross becomes the very expression of God's mercy and forgiveness. And once we've been forgiven, we can also humble ourselves in the service of others. We can forgive them for how they've wronged us because our honor, far from being lost, is only made all the more secure by our forgiveness of them. And we know that the greatest honor consists in the deepest humility and service, for in this is reflected the very character of the God who is the source of all honor and bestows it so freely on people. So when we're wronged, when someone wrongs you, your honor is no longer at stake because your honor, your worth, your value doesn't depend on what that other person thinks of you or does to you or what fate has assigned to you or how bad life has been to you. Your honor, worth, and value depends only on the infinite worth and value God Himself has placed on your life by the sacrifice of the one who would have come if you were the only person on this planet and still lived and died for you. Now, forgiveness and love represent the way to freedom. 
The vicious circle of shame and revenge is broken and replaced by the way of love. Now, I want to tell you, to the pagan mind, this was and still is highly offensive. Nietzsche, the 19th century philosopher who was the inspiration for Adolf Hitler, he drew the same conclusion the Greeks did from the message of Christianity, which was this. To make love the greatest virtue is contemptible. To love your enemy, to honor those who are small and helpless, is a sign of weakness. Fate and honor always glorify image, appearance, and power. Might is right. Truth simply reflects the way things are. A world in which the strong are honored and the weak are despised because that is the fate allotted to them. When the moral values of Christianity are very superficially intermixed with this pagan view of fate, it becomes only a short step to considering, thinking of Nietzsche again, that somehow those with a small portion of honor actually deserve this for some moral wrong they've done, and accordingly, they should be punished. So Nazism derived its essence directly from the Greeks in its policy of killing the lame, the disabled, the unborn, and the Jews. Some of whom, of course, now, along with the elderly, we are still destroying or would like to if we could. God help us. But the gospel declares that only in our weakness is God's strength and glory manifest. It's the opposite of the world. To the Greek congregation at Corinth, which was steeped to the eyeballs in the fate and honor thinking, Paul has to write to them that their search for honor as kings misses the heart of a God who allows his greatest servants to carry the shame and dishonor of the whole world. So listen to how his words build to a climax. We've been made a spectacle to the world. We're fools for Christ. We're weak. We are without honor. Those were words of horror to a Greek. But he says it's in such shameful, worldly dishonorable earthenware vessels that the almighty creator God shows forth his glory. Like I always said with God, uh, God can do everything. God can do a lot with a little, but he can do everything with nothing. And that's me. I don't know about you, but I'm nothing. And, uh, and yet, and when I come to the very point of understanding I'm nothing is the very point where God shows his glory forth in me. So, in God's sight, those who are little are big, and those who are big are little. Jesus said the first will be last, and the last will be first. And only those coming as little children, who are the least significant, weakest, and least honored, can, are those, they're the ones that, in fact, can enter God's kingdom. Now, so Christianity created a revolution which destroyed the pagan worldview of honor and fate. Now, why is this of interest to us today? I believe for this reason. As our society has moved away from its biblical foundations, guess what? There's no vacuum. What comes back is what was there before. And so let me just take a minute, a few minutes, to describe several of the features of our culture and you tell me if it sounds familiar to you. I'll take three. The first is, I call it, my rights or your rights. The concept of rights has developed alongside the rejection of biblical values. There wasn't a lot of emphasis on rights a couple hundred years ago. Now, it seems to be 
A strange connection, but there's a valid reason for it. See, Genesis 1 and 28 teaches that man is made in the image of God. That means God establishes the value of the life of each person, such that, isn't this, this is rather extraordinary, such that Cain is held responsible for taking the life of his brother instead of protecting him. Back to our warning message. Um, and so, God establishes the value of the life of that person. So when we understand that the worth and value of each person are established by God and that the depth of this worth is measured by the sacrifice of God's son, society is given a full and sufficient foundation to protect and value the life of each person. Not only that, but Christian teaching concerning love and care for the poor and disadvantaged further ensures a just and compassionate society. Now, what happens when those foundations crumble? What happens when we begin to see man as a product of chance or evolution rather than a being made in God's own image? See, human nature being what it is, each person, each ethnic group, each interest group, whatever, rushes to secure their own rights, their own piece of the pie. As more and more people join the rush, Inevitably, some will gain a bigger piece of the pie than other people. Having a, a bigger piece makes them feel more significant, more secure, more important, more honored. Some people's rights can only be enlarged at the expense of the rights of others. The woman has a right to an abortion. The helpless infant loses the right to life. In the absence of God, people turn to the courts, believing that laws can change human nature and ensure the expansion of their own particular rights. The gay community seeks greater honor by forcing others through legal action to assign to them the right to marry, regardless of the consequent devaluation of the institution of marriage and the family for the other 98% of the population. And as more people turn to the courts, power moves inevitably from elected representatives to the judiciary. From those who cannot af afford the legal process, power moves to those who can. See, once people have secured their own rights, most have little time to care for the preservation of the rights of others. Now, this is a picture of our society. Doesn't matter what Western country you live in, it's, to, it's, it's true, more or less equally. And so, the end result of a focus on rights actually is that might becomes right. The people with the most money, the loudest voice, the most powerful, secure their own rights. And who cares about the rights of others? There isn't a God left to tell people that you must value that person as much as you value yourself. See, in the absence of biblical foundations, within one generation, our society has reverted to the fate and honor diagram of the pre-Christian world. Just substitute honor for rights, and there you have it. Remember the pie and the slices of honor? Remember the battle over enlarging my sphere at your expense? Remember the focus on my value being determined by what other people think of us rather than who God says I am? The only thing we lack is the furies policing the lines and wreaking vengeance on those who transgress. Although, in my opinion, there are some politically correct furies trying to police those lines in these days. Now, the second analogy here is first was my rights or your rights the second thing I pick up out of society as we see it today is I call it my image or God's image now if I understand the reality of the Bible as God presents it I'm made in his image 
then the most important thing in life is what God thinks of me. Not what somebody else thinks of me. It's what God thinks of me. That's how I define who I am on the basis of what God in His Word says that I am. So everything I have comes from Him. The Bible teaches me He loves me so much that in spite of my sin, He gave His Son to die for me. Now, once society has lost the truth of the ultimate significance of what God thinks of us, something else has to come in to fill the vacuum. And it does. What is now significant is not what God thinks of me, but what others think of me. My worth and value is determined by the opinions of others, by how others see me. Is it any wonder, I ask the question, that image has become everything in our culture? Image is all about making ourselves look good, isn't it? In the sight of other people. What clothes we wear. I buy all my clothes when I come to Britain in a most exclusive boutique, only in this country. It's called Primark. Two pounds for the top and eight pounds for the bottom. And I won't comment on the underwear. Now, so image is all about making ourselves look good in the sight of other people. Now, modern technology provides the means for us to be bombarded day and night with media messages about image. Our appearance is all about image. People will think better of us if we look younger, have a more handsome physique, have our face lifted, nose straightened, hair tinted and fat, lipo sucked it away. Glory to God. We're, we're, well, I had to get that in somewhere. We're, this is not my normal preaching. We're mesmerized by these re, so-called reality and in inverted commas TV programs in which you know, unattractive men or women are shamed before national audiences. Uh, the economy is all about image. We're, we're persuaded that to own a certain vehicle or wear certain kinds of clothes or various other products will improve our image and make people think more highly of us. Politics is all about image. Oh, my goodness. I mean, think about it. There was Winston Churchill. Let's, let's be honest. He was fat. He was short. He was bald. He smoked cigars. And he was generally ill-tempered, rude, and often depressed. On the other hand, Today's politician of your choice who spends more time and money on honing his media image than on his policies. Well, who is the greater leader? Which would you choose? But I'll tell you what, Winston Churchill would never have been elected today because he didn't have the image. See, all we have to do is submit, substitute the word image with honor and we can see how completely we've returned to pre-Christian pagan values because the amount of honor for the Greeks was, was dependent entirely on what other people thought of them. And that's what we're left with today as we turn our back upon the value that God has placed upon us. The Bible says we're made in His image, only His opinion of us counts. And I'm so glad that His opinion of me is enough that in spite of what I did to Him, He sent His only Son to die for me. But... Somehow, in our rebellion, we are determined to recreate ourselves in our own image. But without realizing it, it has cast us, or it does cast us, into a prison where moral worth and, where our, I'm sorry, where our worth and value are dependent on what other people think of us. So, my rights are your rights, my image are God's image, and lastly, my truth or your truth. See, for 2,000 years, we've seen the world around us from the perspective of God and the creation of the universe. There's meaning and purpose in life because God put it there. 
But in recent years, we've been falling backward into a denial of the Creator God and His originating of the universe. And once that's gone, again, something else must step into the vacuum. Now, since the days of Charles Darwin, we have increasingly seen the universe as a product of impersonal evolutionary laws. Now, don't get your back up. You're a biologist here, but just listen to some good preaching. Come on now. <laughs> now, in... I'll repeat that. Since the days of Darwin, we have increasingly seen the universe as a product of impersonal evolutionary laws. Now, in Darwin's day, that could be uneasily combined with a traditional belief in God, but not so easy any longer. Because today's science has taken on a life of its own. Science claims to explain everything by its own laws, independent of God. The laws of physics are eternal. In the words of one scientist, and I quote him, listen carefully to the significance of the phrase, this is the laws of physics, he says, they just are. They just are. Man is nothing more than a collection of atoms, the product of strings of sugar and phosphate molecules known as DNA. What we are is predetermined by our genes. Now, does that sound familiar? Yes. We're caught in a faded prison. What we are is a product of forces beyond our control. Eternal patterns of fate in the form of the law of physics and the way that certain molecules happen to fall into place when we were conceived hold us captive. Matter of fact, we're no longer accountable for what we do. We had no choice. It was all genetically predetermined. See, when the biblical God is no longer the author of life, and is replaced by the forces of fate, then truth and meaning disappear as well. Or at best, truth is relativized. See, truth is represented today by the way things are, as described by supposedly but not really objective scientific methods. There's no meaning or truth which explains how things got there in the first place. There's no truth which is bigger than the forces of fate expressed in the laws of science. And so each of us retreats to our portion of the pie, our piece of the jigsaw, to, depend, to defend what truth, what meaning, what dignity we have left. In other words, to preserve our portion of honor. So as we defend our rights and protect our image, so also we preserve our interpretation of truth. And if there's no transcendent truth left, each of us can only have their own truth. And so, according to this thinking, it doesn't really matter whether my truth agrees with your truth at all. What's important is that your truth can't infringe on my truth, because if it does, your honor is increased at my expense. And I have the right to defend my truth and let it reign in my little portion of the jigsaw. And there, in a nutshell, is a description of what we have come to call postmodernism. And behold the fury which, behold, which falls on the brave soul who dares to declare that they found a truth which is bigger than everybody else's little piece. The person who dares to suggest that there is transcendent objective standard of truth by which everybody's understanding of personal understanding of truth will itself be judged. Nothing gets people more enraged than that. So just as the Furies police the lines of fate, and punish those trying to climb out of their portion with terrible tortures, so the storm troopers of postmodernism hurl their thunderbolts 
at anyone trying to restore a standard of truth, particularly the one standard by which their whole system will collapse, which is the revelation of the eternal God in his word. So things have come around full circle because the present day contrast between Christianity and postmodernism, I think, can be summed up no better way than it was 2,000 years ago when a man shrugged his soldiers and said, what is truth? While the man to whom he was talking unapologetically declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, we could just put that diagram for a moment up on the uh, screen. Now, what is this, you may ask? This is the first time in my life that I've ever pre- I have given this talk before, but this is, a, this is an extra to it. You said, my goodness, it's been enough already. This is a diagram of the Acropolis. I've never preached off it before. It's interesting. Now, where's my pointer? I found a straw at the back. The Lord always provides something. Now, I want to tell you, because for those of you that understand anything about ancient history, uh, the, the, the power behind it all did not come from Rome. It came from Greece. The Romans were good you know, soldiers, but the Greeks really set the standard and called the shots for what people believed and valued. Right here at the beginning, I think it's number six, in the Acropolis is the, is the place in the, you know, the, uh, um, actually, if Athens were uh, invaded, the citizens would flee to the high place and so all of their important shrines and their treasures would be placed there. And at the, begin- at the uh, one end of it here is the statue of Athena Nike, or Nike, which we get our running shoe label from, which means Athena the Conqueror. So Athena was the, the goddess of Athens, the, Athens, the patron go- goddess of Athens. And uh, that, was a testim- that was a shrine to her, capa- her in her, to her in her capacity as the military protector. Thank you very much for that applause. And uh, now up here, about where 21 is, we have the Agora, the marketplace. Paul passed through there while he was uh, in Athens. Uh, Number one here is the Parthenon, which uh, the word Parthenos means virgin. So this is actually the central religious shrine of ancient Greece. Um, It was the shrine to Athena the Virgin in, in her capacity as a virgin. And that was the central place of Greek religion. And over here we have the, um, the uh, what the heck do they call it now? My notes. Ah, I could have made something up and you wouldn't have known any better, but I'm not. It's the theater of Dionysius. Still used to this day, the three tenors or however many there are left, do performances there and so on. Now, let me ask the question. When the world comes looking for answers to its problems, it goes to one of several places. It'll go to the agora, money, commerce, the economy. That's the answer to our problems. Or it may go over here to Athena Nike, military power. Or the world may go over here to the power of organized religion. Or it may go down here to Hollywood. Now I ask the question, where does the church go when it's looking for answers? Sometimes it goes into the Agora too. Faith and prosperity. Teaching. Money's the answer. 
Sometimes the church has resorted to military power. Sometimes, and often, it's fossilized into religion. And unfortunately, particularly on our side of the Atlantic, these days, it's often found in Hollywood. God have mercy on us. This is not a secret-sensitive moment. Now, and I don't believe in secret-sensitive church either. I believe in Holy Spirit-sensitive church. The problem is there's something missing off this diagram. A jujube to the person who can tell me what it is. What's missing? A what? A smarty. What's missing? Something's missing. It's right up here. It's a place called the Areopagus. Where did Paul go? That's where he went. See, Paul understood the answer wasn't in the economy. He understood it wasn't in military power. He knew it wasn't in Hollywood. He knew it wasn't in religion. He knew it was somewhere else. The Areopagus was the intellectual center of ancient civilization. The interesting thing about the Areopagus which means the field of Mars or the field of Ares, Greek god of war. Mars was the Roman equivalent, so it gets translated in, the I think, the authorized version is Mars Hill, and people name churches after it, which is all right. But the interesting thing that I found out about the Areopagus, and there's shrines all over Athens, is that there's only one temple The Areopagus had existed for centuries as the decision-making, debating, judicial center of the, the, the whole civilization. And all the more remarkable, over all those centuries, there's only one temple there. It's not the temple to the unknown God, the Agnostos Theos that Paul refers to in Acts 17. He passed by that in another part of Athens on his way. The shrine that's there is the temple of the Furies. Remember the Furies? They were ones, the ones who controlled the whole system. See, Paul went to the Areopagus that day to shut the whole system down. That's what he did. He knew that he bore a message of freedom that could destroy the power that held a continent in bondage. He took his sword and he stuck it right in the heart. And see, I feel today that God is calling for men and women who will do the same thing. Jesus said, the truth shall make you free. He drew an indispensable link between truth and freedom. When you lose truth, you lose freedom. The truth of the gospel, the biblical message of God and his salvation, set the world free from the bondage of a lie which engulfed the nations of the world in darkness. In 16 years, Paul planted churches and inseminated the the continent of Europe one end to the other. In 16 years, he did it. And when he stuck that dagger in, it was the beginning of the end for the whole system that had controlled those people. And for 2,000 years, that continued. Now... Now, I think, the lie rises 
again. The darkness is coming upon us again in full force. And so to withstand the enemy means, first of all, we have to understand his strategies. It's not all happening by accident. There's nothing new under the sun. What we see today is not some new revelation of modern men and women that understand things better than anybody did before. It's only the old garbage coming back again. And the only reason it's come back is because the power of the gospel and of the word of God has been chipped away at and eradicated largely in many parts of our culture. So the only way to fight it is the same way Paul fought it, fought it by an uncompromised loyalty to the truth of God's Word. And the tragedy is, if we profess faith in Christ with our lips, while seeking at the same time to maintain our image, extend my rights, and preserve my own interpretation of truth, should never happen in the church of the living God. Sometimes we even cut out parts of the Bible we consider offensive and no longer relevant. See, if there was ever a time to fight for the uncompromised truth of the Word of God, folks, it's now. If there was ever time to say, I will not cut corners on truth, it's now. This is not a time to water down the gospel. This is, you will not win people to Christ by being so sensitive to their needs that you imbibe of their fatal potion while you're trying to present the truth to them. You'll just take yourself down with them. This is a time to fight with all the weapons that we have. Because God will call, call us to account and hold us to account for what we do. Now, my brothers and sisters, I suggest to you today that to rise to this challenge with all your mind and heart and soul and strength, this is your destiny. It's not your fate. It's your destiny. You have a choice. So I'm inviting you Whatever way, shape, or form you feel, you can join in this battle to join with me in it today. Now, can we just stand?